Hey guys! You know all that feeling when like you come into work like 15 minutes late with an iced coffee and you're like feel a little bit guilty about it but then at the same time you're like I don't care because I got the iced coffee. <laughs> That's how I feel about this comeback of ours. We we said that we were going to take a break over just December um, and then we decided we weren't done taking a break and luxuriating. So we're back now. Uh, hi. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Uh, we are adult ladies living our lives. Um, also, lots of changes were made. Um, I am very anxious person the last couple of months, so didn't super want to do things. So yeah, that's. I mean, I don't need owe you guys an excuse, but I'm giving you one. Yeah. Should we call it season I'm two? I'm single now, so. Yeah, there we go. We're, we're leaving things in, in 2021, um, and small dick energy is one of them. So, yeah. bye. So, yeah. We didn't, we just didn't necessarily feel like filming. Yeah. A lot of stuff happened. Very eventful. It was a very eventful couple of months, and then also, like, on top of it being very eventful, I was just like, you know what? I'm having a good time not doing shit. So, we're back now. So hi, hi. Um, my cat is incessantly needy. So um, brief moment to let this fucking chonkaroni out the door. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I thought I'd make it farther than this before the cat was being needy. But Let's identify with some animals in 2022. Yeah. I feel like I am... Like a like a grumpy cat. Like I would be pot roast a cat. Oh yeah. And just like hates men. Um what what animal are you identifying with? At currently? the moment, um I'm like one of those little shaky chihuahuas that's just like always anxious about everything but gets to wear a little sweater and lay on the couch. That's me at the moment. And like really likes its owners but doesn't really like anybody else. Yes, that is like to a T. Like if anyone else comes at me, I'm going to bite them. <laughs> it's just the way it's gonna be. Sorry. And I'm just your ancient god of a cat friend that mm-hmm. uh, keeps you company. True, true. Yeah. I like again, I don't feel like I really owe anyone an explanation for taking a long break, especially because we don't have, you know, that many listeners and we definitely don't have any sponsors. But I'm glad to be back. Um, and that is that. Did that rhyme a little bit? A little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Also, um, remember how when I was like, yeah, when we come back, I'll have like a good cult story. Um, I didn't do that this week. <laughs> <laughs> we also said we were going to do a holiday special. We didn't but... do that either. We are just a show full yeah. of empty promises. So please just get used to that. <laughs> Well, we will have something special for, um, for Valentine's Yeah, Day. that we will Definitely. actually have follow through with, because... We have to. Well, the funny thing about that was, is that um, it was something that we were going to do for Christmas, and then we got lazy, and then shipping things took a really long time, and then I'm still waiting on items to arrive, uh, so it's becoming a Valentine's Day treat, which is fine, yeah. actually, because it's like... Ex- any excuse to have a gift-giving holiday is a good excuse for me. I, you know, I don't have really any other updates. I really don't. Um, except for, are you watching Sister Wives at all? 
I'm not, but I'm on Sister Wives TikTok. Okay, so I am also not actually watching Sister Wives, but I'm watching the YouTube like drama channels recounting the current drama and Cody is he's losing lives, let me tell you. Left and right. Left and right. He is down from his roster of four to his roster of two. Um, so more power. I think officially I think only one has officially left him. Uh, Maybe two. No, because Mary left him a while Mary's ago. back in the fold, man. Is she? She's back. It's Mary and Robin are like the two main head bitches now. And then um, Janelle and Christine? Christine. Yeah, that sounds right. Janelle and Christine have left the building. And honestly, good for them. Good for them. Also, for some reason, over the last couple months, I've gotten very heavy into, like, Mormon-shaming YouTube videos. (laughs) I have no stakes in the Mormon church. I have never, I don't think, met a Mormon person and had, like, I mean, I probably have met a Mormon, but, like, I've never, like, had a personal relationship with a Mormon. But here I am. I mean, it's a cult. Uh, Yeah, it's a cult. It's definitely a cult. It's definitely a cult. And so I've been watching all these YouTube videos of, like, um former they call themselves exmo so like former mormons just like trashing the mormon church and i'm like yeah yeah you fucking tell them and i have absolutely no stake in it or like the one chick that uh she she's exmo and she like wears her temple garb and like Mm, roller skates and is a lesbian now yes i love it she's on tiktok and she shows off those fucking sacred panties well then sometimes she just doesn't wear anything underneath the garb and then she's like it's like risque but tasteful, mm-hmm. but in the Mormon Temple Guard. So yeah, so she really out she's there. She's got a lot of death threats. Doing the most. I've also okay. So speaking of that, um, again, I don't watch these when they're actually airing on TV. But my six hundred pound life, but more specifically, thousand pound sisters. I've mm-hmm. every episode I'm getting in like clips on YouTube, and I just oh. Which one is it? Tammy? Tammy. That's just so mean to everyone. But that's like a thing with a lot of the people in like my 600 pound life is that when you get to a certain weight, you're just miserable. Mm -hmm. So you're just mean to everybody. Because you see it with all of them. Like um, really anytime anybody's on Mm -hmm. the 600 pound life and they're all the very like enabling, like self-serving. It's your fault that I'm like this. You've been buying me food. And they're like, bitch, you've been post every day mm-hmm. there's no there's no reason well freaking tammy she okay there's this one episode where her family goes on like a little family vacation to somewhere in tennessee i don't know and one of her siblings is like trying to get her to use a mobility scooter because she obviously has a hard time walking and like using the manual wheelchair and she just like gets in this big fight with her sister like over how she doesn't want to use this mobility scooter and then like leaves the vacation and it's like, uh-huh. Tammy, girl, people are just trying to help you. But she was also fighting with her boyfriend, too. That was part of it. Mm, I didn't she was, like, fighting that. with him over text. And then, yeah, because I think that was on the, that wasn't at the restaurant. Mm. That was at, like, when she's like, I'm going to go to, I need a hotel room. I'm not staying at this cabin. I didn't catch that. Again, I'm getting, boyfriend. like, the two-minute clips of the show on YouTube. So I, I miss a lot yeah. of the finer details. But that's just, you know, yes. where I am in life now is... Um, ex-Mormons 
polygamy and thousand pound sisters so yeah zachary michael on youtube does good recap like a good quick one also he I've also been gives commentary but heavily invested in jamie lynn spears drama okay so there's a tiktok there's a tiktok channel that so we all know like britney's instagram captions specifically are a little unhinged so like they're just long and kind of rambling but there's this one tiktok account where she's like i'm a southern woman from louisiana this isn't as unhinged if you read it like a southern woman and she like reads Mm -hmm. it i'm like that makes perfect sense the way she's just like ranting like a southern woman would so like britney drag her honestly it makes sense to me but also i have family that's southern so Mm. it it's kind of like you know how in king of the hill nobody can understand boom power (laughs) yeah like i can understand boom power and you can understand yeah solidarity for life also i'm a little surprised that jamie lynn spears did an interview on the Call Her Daddy podcast. Ew. Yeah, like a two-hour interview. Not a fan. I don't... I'm not a huge fan of Barstool Sports or yeah, Call Her Daddy I, or anything. I've listened to a couple of those episodes. Actually, so I watched or listened to that podcast before they booted the co-host. So I think now it's just the one girl. Um, and I haven't listened to it in years. Because I feel like it's one of those things that's like more for like the young... 20 somethings and i'm just like too fucking old <laughs> at this point to get it or care but yeah well and it's also kind of like like chibi it's like very it's like the female version of joe rogan yeah it's the best way just to describe like it yeah if that's your cup of tea yeah that's fine but for me just not my not my jam which is why right. i was like why of all the people that jamie lynn wants to go on and do like an ex Bose interview about her sister. Why call her daddy? Call her daddy. It doesn't really make any sense because isn't she like super Christian too? Even though she was like had a she, baby. Yeah, she claims to be. Yeah. Yeah, she's one of those people though. She's. She... Yeah, when it serves her. Uh-huh. Anyway, all right. Now that we had our daily pop culture digest, <laughs> should we get into actually what this <laughs> podcast is about? Arguably, we are a pop culture podcast as well. You get a little bit of pop culture to, like, cleanse the palate before we get into, like, the meat and potatoes. Ashley Storytime. What are you talking about this week? Did you watch The Staircase on Netflix? I did not. Um, I would not recommend it, actually. (laughs) Uh, it's, It's okay. But it's, like, very long. The episodes are really long and just drawn out and there's a lot of following this case around like just as they're drinking at home so it's just not really worth it i feel like to watch it but don't worry because you don't have to watch it because i did so perfect so we're gonna get like the <laughs> highlight reel recap of all the actual important yeah okay good of the actual important and stuff that you know maybe not was in the documentary but I thought was more important than some of the bullshit and wine <laughs> drinking and talking about where you got uh, wine glasses from that was in the documentary. That seems I, I like I don't even recall seeing like the previews or like anything for this. So is it just like a bunch of like moms in their living room like trying to solve a crime? 
drinking wine? No. No, it's actually of the suspect in the case drinking wine and talking about how they didn't didn't do it. Oddly <laughs> intriguing. Okay, continue, continue. Okay, so our story starts on December 9th around 2.45 a.m. Michael Peterson was walking into his Durham, North Carolina mansion, mm. heading to bed after he spent a lovely crisp evening drinking wine by his pool. And he discovered that his wife, Kathleen Peterson, was battered and bleeding, but still breathing at the bottom of the stairs. Michael, distraught and frantic, called 911 to try to get an ambulance on the scene before it was too late. His panicked tone can be heard in the docuseries, The Staircase, which goes through pretty much all the 911 call, which, like I said, The Staircase documentary, very long, very lengthy. (laughs) Don't necessarily recommend. Anyways, upon questioning, Michael... He postulated that Kathleen had been drinking and had been taking a lot of Valium lately, so maybe she fell down the stairs because she was just really drunk. But detectives, upon seeing the crime scene, were skeptical. Was this just a simple drug-addled accident, or could it be a murder? So this case is sort of like an infected wound. You can keep washing away the layers and things don't really get any clearer. So let's start at the very beginning. Michael Peterson was born in Tennessee to Eugene Ivor Peterson and Eleanor Peterson. He earned a bachelor's degree in political science from Duke. He went on to take a civilian job with the U.S. Department of Defense after he graduated. Around this time, he also moved to West Germany and married his first wife, Patricia Sue, and they had two children, Clayton and Todd. In 1968, Mikey enlisted in the Marines to go fight in the Vietnam War for a few years, but was honorably discharged in 1971 with the rank of captain after a car accident left him disabled. Mike and Pat lived in Germany for a while after he came home from the war and hung out with a couple known as Elizabeth and George Ratliff and their two small children, Margaret and Martha. In 1983, George passed away from a heart attack and Elizabeth began to rely on Mike and Pat to help her with her two small children. You know, they're all Americans living in Germany. Mm-hmm. Two years after this, Elizabeth was tragically found dead in her home after falling down the stairs. It was determined that she had suffered from a brain hemorrhage and had died before she even fell down the stairs. Her falling down the stairs was just coincidental. But So she was actually shipped back to the States and buried in Texas. And out of the goodness of their hearts, Mike and Pat, having you know spent a lot of time with these two young girls, had decided to adopt them and raise them as they're on alongside their two sons. However, all good things must come to an end, and in 1987, Pat and Mike divorced. Pat took the boys, and Mike took the girls, and he moved to Durham, North Carolina. Wait. So you're telling me that not one, but two people in this story fell down the stairs and died? Yes. So I was very confused by the timeline because I was like, wait, so, okay, this was a long time ago, but wait, the Netflix documentary? No. Wow, okay, so maybe this is just a cursed family. Well, we'll, we'll see. We should just live in only ranch-style homes, guys. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> no stairs. I mean, I wouldn't hate that. Or, like, you have an elevator. Yeah, no stairs about all elevators. Because, I mean, like, stairs are a killer. Stairs are yeah. vicious. yeah. Clearly. I've fallen down the stairs and, like, gotten a 12-inch by 12-inch bruise before just from, like, falling on my butt. 
Like a big one, too. Not just like a little yellow, like a big purple and black bruise. When so, I was little, I my siblings and I would get in laundry baskets and like go down the stairs. <laughs> and at the bottom of, you're familiar with my parents' house, but at the bottom of the stairs, there's like kind of like a little wooden, like, there's like a, a partition, but it, at the time it was like a wooden bookcase with glass shelves and the amount of times that we like fucking speed racer down those stairs and either sleeping bags was a good one too if you got the ones that like like the swishy pants fabric mm-hmm. you'd get in a sleeping bag and you'd like launch yourself down there or in a laundry basket man you could really kill someone including yourself <laughs> but luckily you didn't well i mean luckily we didn't but i'm just saying i understand how this could happen see my parents' house just has, like, the death stairs where, like, it's, it's like, a six-inch, um, like, width. Mm-hmm. So, like, your whole foot doesn't even fit on the stair. And those are, like, deadly Victorian stairs. Like, when you watch the shows about, like, hidden killers of the Victorian era, it's all about, like, the stairs. I'm like, yes, these <laughs> stairs are the, the killer stairs. But, yeah. So, and this, this lady was not related to them that also fell down the stairs. She was just a friend. And they took her children. Okay. So, who, who knows? Anyways, so Pat and Mike, they divorced. Mike's now living in Durham, North Carolina with the two Ratliff girls. Uh, around this time, Mike wrote a few books about his time in the war and claimed that he had a bunch of medals and awards, some of which he actually did not have, some of which he did. He tried to run for Durham mayor. Um, and then basically he just kind of wrote some newspaper articles bullying the police department and the <laughs> DA, um, and was just being lame as shit, doing real, like, male Karen type dad shit, smoking pipes, drinking a lot of wine, oh, yeah. you know, as you do. living in his, yeah. In 1989, Mike moved in with the smoking hot, successful Nortel business executive Kathleen Adewater, and in 1997, they were married. Of course, Mike had his four children, and Kathleen also had a daughter named Caitlin. So they've got five kids at any given time in this of house. Course. That's a lot of fucking So kids. things, yeah. Well, two of them are adopted, which you know, good, good that they adopted them. But like, the Ratliffs had family. It wasn't like, I don't know. It was weird, but that's what they did in the eighties. I guess it's just took people's kids. <laughs> Um, so things were all sunshine and daisies for a few years, but they were growing increasingly tense in the Peterson household in the months leading up to the accident. Um, according to Kathleen's sister, Candace, Kathleen was downing pills and alcohol to help relieve the stress of, um, the increasing worry that she was actually going to lose her job, which, like, same girl thing. <laughs> it's not a day that I don't think that I'm going to get fired for something stupid. Um... But basically, things were not going well at the company. A lot of layoffs were happening. The stock price was falling, which is what, like, a lot of her retirement money was tied up in. And she was worried that she wouldn't find anywhere that would match her $145,000 a year salary if she were made for that. Which, yeah, this was also the 90s, so. Damn, yeah, so that's, like, like $300,000 in today's world. Which it doesn't sound like it should be that much more, but really with inflation Mm -hmm. it is so she was attempting to cut back on what she considered frivolous spending during this time like forcing her elderly wheelchair-bound mother to take the subway instead of the cab when they went on a family trip to paris so you can afford the plane the plane and everything to paris but you can't afford to let your 
wheelchair bound mother take a cab. Oh God. Um, she also wanted to downsize their mansion into something a little bit more manageable. You know, the kids I think were at this point were grown or, you know, grown enough that mm-hmm. they didn't need all of the rooms. And Mikey boy, he just didn't agree with that. He's like, you know, this is, this is nice. He liked his wine cellar. He liked the dinner parties. He liked smoking his dump pipes out by his swimming pool slash fountain. He's a man of luxury. Exactly. So downsizing out of the question. On top of this pretentious bullshit, Kathleen was suffering from chronic headaches, burnout, stress, and feelings of being run down, which like same girl, same. (laughs) Um, She also did not have the time to see a doctor, which same girl, same. So she was patching herself up by... Drinking and popping value. Yeah, I mean, so that seems legit. Not same girl, same, but I get, you know, <laughs> I get it, girl. I get it. <laughs> your useless husband, you know, whatever. Your mom who wants to take a cab in Paris. Gotta she do what you gotta do, eyes? man. So Kathleen, absolute girl boss. She's distracted by the prospect that her career that she spent forty-eight years building was on the verge of collapse. Well, really, not forty-eight years. Probably more like. 30 or 20, I don't know, but she, she, her career is on the verge of collapse. Like, he didn't seem too concerned, or like, he was even really paying attention, because see What does he do? Does he have a bougie job? He bullies people on, in the newspaper. He bullies the police department in the newspaper. But like, does he have a job? No. Oh, so he He is just Oh, okay. (laughs) Probably self-published. He's an artist. He's an artist. Yeah, so Mikey Boy, he is just, you know, writing articles for the newspaper, bullying then the police department, the DA, which it's like, get the vibe, but also, you know, maybe publicly harassing the police and the DA is not going to be a good idea, as we'll find out later. Um, he also was a little bit more concerned with his own affairs um, that he'd been keeping on the side. So, see, Mikey Boy... He wasn't just an ally. He was maybe a little bit bisexual. Oh, um, he has sneaky links. Yeah, he's got sneaky links on the side. And it ranged from downloading a bunch of gay porn to the family computer back when you downloaded porn. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just images. And to s- sending raunching emails to other men that wanted to have some little sneaky link affairs. And... Went all the way up to scheduling a failed rendezvous with the male escort, and basically, like, it was going to happen, but then the male escort was just like, uh, instead of coming here, I'm actually just gonna go down and, like, party in Miami with my friends. He would have really loved Grindr. It's a shame. Oh. He would have. Could you imagine? Just... It would have made his life a lot easier. Yeah. Well, I mean... Cell phones in general, like, smartphones would have made his life a lot easier in general. But anyways, so he didn't actually hook up with this guy. He might have hooked up with some other dudes. Nobody really came forward. Um, And he said, after the fact, that Kathleen, she had known about it. And she had agreed with his little affairs because she knew that she couldn't provide things that he wanted. Um, which kind of just sounds like something that a man would say Mm -hmm. so that he could just do whatever he wanted. So, you know, and when you hear him talking about it later, like in the, the special, in the docuseries, it doesn't really sound like he's telling the truth. Like it, 
it, I just, I call bullshit. It doesn't sound like she probably knew. Or if she didn't, she wasn't yeah. accepting of it. So this is kind of the history of Michael Peterson as it led up to the accident. Um, so back to the accident, you know, Kathleen, she fell down the stairs. She did not survive her injuries and she was pronounced dead soon after she was discovered. Uh, they ran an autopsy on her because this is super suspicious. And the autopsy determined that she had suffered several lacerations to the top and back of her head, a fracture to her thyroid cartilage, so like in her leg. She had a blood alcohol level of 0.07, and she also had anti-anxiety and muscle relaxants in her system. And she had fallen and been lying for about 90 minutes to two hours before no. being discovered. And that her cause of death was exsanguination or blood loss. That she basically just bled to death in this situation. It was determined that she had not, however, suffered from a fractured skull, um, subdural hematoma or brain injury. So it wasn't like she had hurt her head that badly. It was just that she had bled out at the bottom of the stairs. Um, and according to Mike, in the 911 call, they asked, you know, how many stairs did she fall down? He said probably 10, 15. I don't really know. Um, and that, again, when the police arrived, he said it was likely due to the fact that she was drunk on benzos. But the medical examiner didn't exactly agree. She thought it was looking a little bit more like a murder. <laughs> so, in the subsequent investigation, police were also immediately suspicious of the amount of blood found in the stairwell and the splatter that it had been created in the stairwell, all up the walls. Um, and the injuries that had been sustained just didn't really seem like, you know, falling down the stairs is an accident. It seemed more like she'd been bludgeoned with something. Maybe like something lightweight so that it didn't cause any skull or brain mm -hmm. injuries, but had lacerated her skin. So they decided to charge the only other person on the property at the time, Michael, with murder. So this case, it goes to trial. And bisexual stuff, it's brought up. It was suggested that Kathleen had found out about the affairs and she was going to divorce Mike and basically, you know, take him for everything that he was worth, which pissed him off. And because he was a pretentious piece of shit who didn't <laughs> want his quality of life affected, it was also suggested that Mike had killed Kathleen just to collect her $1.5 million life insurance policy well, because mean... she was on the verge of losing her job anyway. So what was the purpose of keeping her around? Nothing. So, kind of believable. The defense claimed that Kathleen knew about the affairs and didn't care since the evidence was apparent on the family computer. She could have just seen the the gay porn images directly <laughs> that were on the desktop, which, okay. Uh, they also claimed that the Petersons' assets and investments far outweighed their debts, so even if Kathleen had lost her job, that it likely wouldn't have caused an issue that they would have had way more than enough money to keep them afloat for a long time. Um, and that her company, that if she had been made redundant, actually had a really cushy severance policy mm. and, like, package that they would have given her that would have kept them going for a while. So the prosecution hit back that the blood splatter evidence, that was, it definitely signifies murder. They had in a blood splatter analyst so the blood splatter analyst was like, this blood splatter, it's consistent with murder. It can only be caused by a tool being flipped upwards. Um, the defense brought in their own analyst that was like, no, this was caused by her coughing up this blood. And he actually like was 
taking watered-down ketchup and, like, coughing it on paper to show, yeah. like, oh, yeah, this is what it looked like. They also, the prosecution was really concerned with the fact that the blood was dry by the time the first responders had got there. So they're basically saying she had been dead for a while. He was just waiting till she was really fully and truly dead to actually call 911 because he want like, he wanted to make sure she was dead. Um, and they, the prosecution also said that likely it was a lightweight fireplace tool known as a blow poke that Kathleen's sister had gifted her but was currently missing from the house that was the murder weapon due to the superficial nature of the injury so again it was just the skin the scalp was lacerated mm-hmm. several times and they're saying that like this is the only thing that we think could have been lined enough that was in the house that would have caused these lacerations without causing further damage to the skull or um to the brain or anything the defense said later in the trial we're like hey we found a blow poke it's been sitting in the attic for, or the garage or something. It was sitting somewhere for years. They're like, had evidence of this had been sitting here. It was covered in dust, covered in spider webs. There was no DNA evidence or anything to signify that this had ever been used to bludgeon someone to death. And so they're like, this is not, no, this isn't real. Um, the prosecution kind of turned around and they're like, well, Mike's not very credible. You know, he lied about the events of the war in his books. He grossly exaggerated a lot of stuff. Uh, He talked a lot about killing people and other really dark shit. And he was lying possibly about the affairs to everyone. He also lied about what medals he had won in the war. And the prosecution, or the the defense was like, well, you know, marriage was happy. Anyone can tell you the marriage was happy. Uh, He did win some medals. He didn't win others. And as far as everything else, eh, we don't really know what to say. So, the it kind of goes back to the prosecution. They're like, wait, so this isn't the first time that someone has fallen down the stairs. And Mike just happens to be the last person who has seen them fall down the stairs. Oh, dear. Or Mike just happens to be the last person to see them alive before they fall down the stairs. Let's talk about Elizabeth Ratliff. You know, her body's here in Texas. Why don't we just uh, dig it up? Let's do a little little autopsy on her. Because <laughs> her death was originally ruled that it was an intracerebral hemorrhage secondary to a blood coagulation disorder. Mm-hmm. And this was backed up by the evidence of blood in her... It was backed up by the evidence of blood in her cerebrospinal fluid and the fact that she had been suffering from severe headaches in the weeks leading up to her death. So, again, she's dug up fully traumatizing the two daughters who are already, like, you know, our only dead that we've ever known mm-hmm. is on trial for the murder of our mom. They they really knew her as mom, Kathleen. Yeah. They're, like, on, on trial for the murder of our mom, and then our biological mom is now being dug yeah. up. Like, what is going on? And I think her siblings were, like, fully, fully under the impression, Elizabeth's siblings or fully under the impression that Michael had killed her as well. So the same medical examiner actually that did Kathleen's autopsy did an autopsy on Elizabeth and determined, surprise, surprise, that Elizabeth's death had also been a murder. However, the prosecution decided not to charge Michael with the murder of Elizabeth because they're like, it doesn't really add anything. The best thing that we can 
argue in this case is that he might have had something to do with it or he might have just learned how to stage mm-hmm. the eventual crime scene for Kathleen. Right. So, you know, we don't really know. We don't really care, but it's likely that he could have learned what falling downstairs and dying that's so like from Elizabeth. Yeah, they're like, that's weird. <laughs> so how many years passed between the first wife falling down the stairs and dying and then the second? Well, the first one wasn't even his wife. It was just, like, their neighbor. Oh. So he was at her house helping her with her two daughters. hmm And he left. She fell down the stairs and died. And then the next morning, her nanny showed up and was just found her dead. Why do I find it so weird? And, like, I know you talked about this earlier, that this, like, neighbor or friend raised the two girls then. Right. And it's, like, it's not like she didn't have family. She had family. Yeah, that's really strange. Like, I, I know it doesn't add anything to the case at all, but, it's like, it's just weird. Like, why, of all people? I don't know. But anyways, we digress. <laughs> so, the defense, you know, they're bringing their blood spatter blood splatter analyst they're trying to prove that you know it was consistent with falling down the stairs they also had a theory that there were actually only three impacts on her scalp rather than the seven or eight that the prosecution and medical examiner were proposing but that the other lacerations quote unquote were caused by her scalp splitting so it's apparently common when you like hit your head on a flat surface and since your skin is like so tall on your skull if it like hits one area and pulls Mm -hmm. because the skin isn't really flexible and doesn't really have any give it'll tear and then it'll tear like a few inches above so it's like when you're pulling like um something stretchy like latex or Mm -hmm. something and it might like rip in one spot but then a few inches above it'll rip in another spot so it like just really yeah so that's what they're suggesting actually happened is that there was just skin tear scalp tear there was a little bit about, you know, it could have been an accident, you know, when she fell down the stairs, but how did Mike not hear her calling for help? Mm-hmm. Like, he must have heard of her and just ignored her, please. And at the very least, he was negligent in her death rather than actively causing it. Um, but they actually did an experiment where they determined that the way that the house was set up and built along with the fountain in the pool, that you could not really hear someone calling for help from the stairwell, even if you were, like, yelling, which she likely wasn't doing if she was... Yeah, she had, you had mentioned, like, she had an injury in her neck, right? And then not to mention, like, she would have had a mouthful of blood, too. She wouldn't have been able to, like, yell as loud as, like, just a normal person. Well, if she hit her head and she was drunk. Yeah. And also on benzo, she was probably, like, (laughs) so, exactly like that. (laughs) But they, like, did a, they put a recording at the bottom of the stairs where she would have been, and it was, like, somebody, like, screaming help, and you really couldn't hear it by yeah. the pool, so. Because pool had, like, a nice fountain, and there was, like, you know, other sounds mm. and ambiance, leaves. And that's assuming he wasn't, like, watching TV or listening to music on top of whatever he was doing. Well, I mean, he was out smoking his pipe and drinking wine by the pool, so he was just taking mm. in the night air. The ambiance. Which, like, uh, Honestly, like, if I had a pool, I'd probably spend a lot of time just drinking wine out. Oh, yeah. For sure. So, everything that's kind of piled in this trial, it really is all over the place. Like, they even pulled in the escort that he was originally going to have an affair with. 
you know, they're pulling in all these people, all these experts, all these just random ass people who are attesting that he was actually a bad dude. So on, it all kind of came to a head on October 10th, 2003, when Mike was found guilty of Kathleen's murder. It was determined to be a spur of the moment murder, but it was also premeditated, which whatever. And he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. The jurors in later interviews claimed that the amount of blood and the number of lacerations led to their guilty verdict, even though in the defense's blood spatter analyst's report, he claimed that her coughing is what created the blood spatter again, and then it, the amount could have actually been that she was bleeding a little bit, and then she also urinated like as she was at the bottom of the stairs, so that it could have been diluted with urine. So it wasn't actually all blood, it was just urine mixing in with it, which honestly, like, there's been times where I've fallen down the stairs and I almost peed myself or myself. <laughs> I fall down the stairs a lot. And not like a whole lot, but I tinkle, you know. Yeah, of course. I mean <laughs> it happens. Especially when you fall on your butt. Yeah. Like, just boom, 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 boom. scares the pee out of you a little bit. A little bit. Just a little tinkle. Yeah. Well and she had a child, so mm-hmm. probably her pelvic floor was shit. So she's probably even more peeing herself. Yeah. And drunk and high on benzos. Mm-hmm. So Around this time, Caitlin, who was Kathleen's daughter, also filed a wrongful death suit against Mike, which was settled to the tune of $25 million. So Mike goes to prison and he's like, I didn't do this. I'm going to file some appeals, which pretty much all of them either get shot down or it's found that he was guilty of the murder. At some point, it's suggested by Mike's legal team that Kathleen may have actually been attacked by a barred owl outside of front of the house. Due to the fact that there was a whole colony of barred owls living in the woods near the house, and that there were some blood smears of Kathleen's found on the front door and just kind of on sticks around the property, there were owl feathers found on her body, tiny wounds on her hands and face that looked like she had been pecked mm-hmm. by a beak, maybe. Um, and that the last some lacerations on her scalp were consistent with the shape that a barred owl's talon would make if it clenched into your skin. Um, and also that barred owls are incredibly territorial and just vicious and they will attack a lot of people. Like, they went to the Smithsonian, they went to the Audubon Society, they're like, tell us what these barred owls can do. So, first reaction to them saying it was an owl, I was like, yeah, right, but now that you're, like, describing, like, the pecking, like, the small, like, scratch marks, the owl feathers, like... I could see a drunk lady getting swooped upon by an owl and then, like, doing, like, oh, my God, like, get out of here, pissing the owl off and then falling down the stairs. And then the owl's, like, pissed as well. And if an animal's pissed off, it's not going to be like, oh, she's falling down the stairs, you know, job done. It's going to, like, be like, get out of here, fuck you. I'm going to peck your eyes out and then just, like, go to town, baby. Or even it could have, like, attacked her outside and then, you know... She got it off, and then she went inside, but she was already bleeding, mm-hmm. drunk, high, so she just kind of, like, was too woozy, got halfway up the stairs, and, you know. Yeah. Like, it sounds a lot more stupid without having any of those details. Okay, but one time when I was little, actually multiple multiple times as a teen, but one time when I was little, I got attacked by a turkin which is a mix between a turkey and a chicken. And you might not say it's real, but I swear to God it was real. And it attacked me, and it pecked the shit out of me. And I was like five, four maybe. I was tiny. 
And this bird that's as big as I am came mm-hmm. after me. As a teen, I've had multiple roosters come at me. Birds are, can be mean. And especially if it's like mating season, mm-hmm. you know, or if you're... Or if there's like a nest in the nearby. Front. Yeah, if there's a nest nearby or if it's mating season. or Even if you're just getting too close mm-hmm. to them as as they're messing around or they'll go after you. They'll attack you. And they're, they can be mean. That's cockfighting. That's a thing. Yeah. I can kind of believe it. I can see it. And then it's just like, she wouldn't have died from the injuries from the owl, but because she Mm -hmm. then tried to go upstairs, you know, she fell down the stairs and died. So this theory, however, is put on the back burner when it is discovered that the blood splatter analyst for the prosecution in the original case was fired in 2011 due to falsely representing evidence hmm. in 34 cases. That's suspicious. That's including weird... withholding... Sorry. <laughs> I'm going to keep no, saying that. Including withholding negative results in the case of a North Carolina man who spent 17 years in prison for a murder based solely on the testimony of the blood <laughs> splatter, splatter analyst. Oh, no. So, they're like, okay, well maybe you're not as guilty as we thought you are. So we're going to transition you into house arrest. And this happened in 2011. So he spent a few years on house arrest, awaiting a new trial, and he was finally granted one in 2017. And at this point, he's just like, I'm tired, I'm done. He entered an Alfred plea in, of voluntary manslaughter, which is basically where the defendant claims innocence, but acknowledges that there is sufficient evidence to convict them of the crime. It kind of feels like when you have to apologize for something that, like, your siblings did, but you didn't do what they said you did, mm-hmm. and you're just like, I'm sorry, because you just don't want to be punished anymore. Yeah. So, he was sentenced to 86 months with credit to time previously served, so he didn't have to go back to prison. Um, So, that kind of ends his trial, his story. What is he doing now? To this day, he claims he was innocent. Uh, he sold his mansion to pay for the massive settlements and court costs, and currently is living a very modest life, donating all the proceeds from his books to charity because he doesn't want that bitch of his stepdaughter to get any more of his money, <laughs> according to him, because he's innocent. Um, and he's living this very modest life in a ground-level apartment with no stairs, which is very important <laughs> for him to have. True. Lest his future girlfriends come over and... Meet the same fate or as... Or boyfriends. Or boyfriends, yeah. His future partners. But could you imagine... Th- okay, it's kind of like... Um, there's a house somewhere in the Midwest where it's like doesn't have any... It's supposed to not have any 90 degree angles because that's like ghosts get trapped in it or something. And so the owner had it built with no 90 degree angles except for the builders made a mistake. And they put one corner of the house as a 90 degree angle. And the original owner of the house was found dead in that 90-degree oh, angle. Oh, I hate it. Could you imagine if he died by falling down the stairs? Oh, my God. That, honestly, <laughs> like, I don't wish that upon anyone, but that would be, like, a very comedic end to that man's and, life. And, I mean, it could still happen, right? He's still alive. He's still alive. So, for all we know, he's... he could go to, like, the library, fall down the stairs, and kick the bucket my guy he's he definitely still goes to the library probably the talent is yeah probably so anyways i have a theory 
And I talked to you a little mm-hmm. bit about the theory, but I'm going to tell our listeners about the theory. And I don't necessarily buy into the owl theory. It's possible, but because they are mean. Um, and I don't necessarily know that Michael killed her outright. Um, I think at the most he may have ignored, he might have heard her calling and ignored her because like men do be like that mm-hmm. sometimes where they're just like, oh, this bitch just wants me to unload the dishwasher. Like, yeah. I'm going to pretend like I don't hear. So like, I could see that, but that's the most I could see happening. But some of the main points that aroused suspicion um, to the police and everyone were was the dried blood in the stairwell. So, you know, he either killed her or she fell down the stairs and he just waited until she was really and truly dead before calling 911. But with her blood alcohol level at 0.07, which what happens is when you consume alcohol, the alcohol slowly replaces the water that's in your blood. Um, alcohol can dehydrate you when you drink it. And it has a much higher evaporation rate than water. So liquid components of her blood, having been replaced with the tiniest bit of alcohol, might have evaporated just that little bit much faster than like regular blood. When if she were to have fallen on the stairs, gotten blood everywhere, it might have still been tacky or, you know, a little bit wet by the time that the police got there. Also, she was suffering from chronic headaches. She might have been taking aspirin regularly. So that could have fed her blood if she was chronically taking aspirin um, and not just the benzos. And also, as being a woman, she could have already been a little bit anemic and dehydrated, Mm -hmm. so she might have bled out a little bit faster. Um, You know, when you are hydrated, your blood, there is more water content to it. And if you're anemic, then there's less red blood cell content. So, you know... Overall, there's just less blood in your body if you're thinking of dehydration, anemia, replacing your the water in your blood with alcohol and benzos. So I think, honestly, that's why the blood was dry. That's why there was probably a lot of blood. Um, and I was trying to do some research on it, and I couldn't really find that much about it. But if you happen to know of any studies done on uh, high alcohol content blood listeners let us know Mm -hmm. because i think that her time of death was just determined by body temp i don't think it was and it might have been rigor when she got to the autopsy but again that could have been affected by the aspirin Mm -hmm. by the benzos by the alcohol like i think there's too many factors in her bloodstream at that point right and another like big component of the prosecution's argument that i didn't mention before was that she was not a clumsy person she was very graceful she was, you know, she was athletic. She would not have just fallen down the stairs. But, like, my argument is that she was all fired up on benzos and wine, my dudes. Yeah. Like, the, like, when you read the drug interactions, it causes dizziness. It causes loss of consciousness. It causes stumbling, accidents, decreased physical reactions. So she absolutely could have biffed it down the stairs mm-hmm. and then just went limp like a rag doll and just, like, Yeah. So... Like, like I said, I have busted my ass sober on down the stairs and gotten huge bruises and hurt myself. Like, just because she wasn't messy in public doesn't mean she wasn't messy. <laughs> true. Very true. So, that, I think she, personally, I think she fell down the stairs. Yeah. I think it was a tragic coincidence, but coincidences do happen. I don't think that she was okay with the male escorts, though. Probably not, I mean, no. 
she was very maybe not okay with that. Um, and I wonder if there was some trouble, but she might have been just trying to work through it because she had other shit going mm-hmm. on. I can kind of imagine the situation, like the conversation with her being like, I don't have time to deal with this right now. I have my own shit yeah. to worry about. <laughs> I'll deal with you later. So that's what I think happened. Honestly, that's the most plausible to me is that she was just drunk and on pills and just clumsy, clumsy lady fell down the stairs and bonked her head a little too hard. Mm-hmm. Like the damage I have done to myself sober, I can only imagine the damage that someone could do drunk. Well, like imagine falling at such an angle where your head is like the first thing going down and like your scalp or skull hitting every stair on the way down. Like you would have a lot of like, you were t- talking about that tearing. There would be a lot mm-hmm. of tension on the skull. So you'd have a lot of like a, just from the impact and like from the tension every time you're head is like catching and snagging on each stair on the way down you can right. have a lot of lacerations on the head from that i would imagine so that seems the most plausible right. to me and even like honestly i don't fully buy into the owl theory like what if okay she was drunk she's on pills she's going up the stairs and owl swoops down on her she freaks out and falls like it well seems... they think it happened like, outside, like, she was putting out reindeer outside or something mm-hmm. for Christmas, and then the owl attacked her up there, and then maybe it took, came inside with her, maybe it didn't, they don't really know. Mm-hmm. It's it's a half-hearted theory anyways, because then all the stuff about the blood splatter analyst came out, and then they're like, oh, this is a much better way to go yeah. here. Like, this is a much better argument than the owl thing. I think the owl one, they were really just grasping mm-hmm. his jaws. But I could even see the owl one, because owls... Birds are mean. Mm-hmm. Birds are vicious. Birds are fucking they'll, assholes, man. They're weird, and owls especially. Owls are just like they're otherworldly beings. <laughs> I no, I don't trust anything that doesn't poop. Birds don't poop. No, owls don't poop. They throw up their bones and pellets. I didn't. I mean, I knew they did the pellets, but I wasn't aware that they just didn't shit. I think it's like they have not like. Hold on. Let me just fact check Do owls poop? <laughs> this is exactly what I'm doing. Okay, so it's mostly whitewash, like bird poop. Okay. But it's more like pee. Hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely don't but trust like, them. They, it's... Yeah. So they, they cough up the pellets, and then everything else is like, there's a little bit of stuff in it, but it's more of uric acid, so it's more like... The more you know. Owls are crazy, man. Guys, we learned a lot today about owls. And My the dad al- likes owls. The content, alcohol content and blood. How blood is mm-hmm. made. This is like a very educational story, just so you know. Like on a scientific level. Well, that's just my theory. I could be completely yeah. wrong. I asked my sister, who's a nurse, about it. And she said, that's an interesting theory. I don't know for sure. I was like, well, what help are you? What yeah. are you now? You are of no use to me. Be gone. I know. I, I mean, I researched how it works. So I have a working, that's my working theory. That's the best I can come up with. Any nurses listening or doctors or hematologists? Is that what it is? Blood doctors? Yeah. Let us know. Like I want to I want to do it as an experiment, but then I'd have to like cut myself. Yeah, maybe don't do that. Maybe, maybe I'll let my sister draw my blood, actually. She can do that. Well, let me know how that goes. (laughs) 
We'll just run our own experiment. I'll just get drunk and have Yeah, we're going to get you really just fucked up. <laughs> and then have your sister take your blood draw. But And I would also have to have sober blood, so I'd have to start out have yeah. some blood drawn. And then get trashed. And then have some blood drawn. Shake it up because, you know, blood cells. I wonder if you'd get really drunk faster because you're, I mean, like, you're not taking a lot of blood for a blood draw, but, like. I think it depends on, like, how anemic you are. Yeah. Well, and for a blood draw, you're taking a few, you know, few drops, mm-hmm. really. It's not. It looks like a lot because it's in that tube thing that's just absolutely the devil. I hate having no blood drawn, actually, so maybe we'll run that on her. She's fine with it. <laughs> For science. It is science. We have to test this hypothesis. I agree. I feel like it's accurate. We will uh, sense, report right? back with our findings. <laughs> Maybe. I'll write, a, I'll write a paper on it. Please do and get it like peer reviewed and researched and then submit it to some <laughs> sort of medical journal and then that's how we get rich. And by we I mean okay. you but I am by proxy rich. First of all I feel like you can't get rich on this little Second yeah. of all it's like have you seen the thing where it's like people have become accidental experts in something because they wrote a paper about something for a class that they had to take and then nobody else has done anything about it mm-hmm. and then they were comparing research and discovered discrepancies in the research and all of a sudden now they're the expert in some random like the populations of like woodland shrews or something. Okay, so like sort of similar idea but not. There's this like girl on TikTok who her and her friend got really bored over lockdown and so they were like mapping out the class schedules for every year at Hogwarts and they like found a big plot hole and I think it was like the prisoner of Azkaban where they're like no Hermione totally could have taken all of these classes without the time yeah, turner cause... if she really wanted to right and so kind well, of that. also wasn't like the main one that she had to take was like divination mm-hmm. and it was just like this you don't have to take it right but like also, each professor, go ahead. there's only like one professor for each subject. Class. So, like, I don't know. I feel like it would be easy to be like arranging your schedule, but I don't know. Again, I'm not the expert, the TikTok girl is, so I'll have to find her and be like, Have you also oh. seen the theory where like uh, Ron is actually a really powerful seer, but he's always joking about it, so nobody believes him? I have not seen that, no. Yeah, it's, like, because he's, some of the stuff he says in the books is, like, actually turns out to be accurate, but, like, it's, like, between him and Trelawney, it's, like, uh, anytime there's a powerful seer, their curse will be that no one will believe them. Because mm-hmm. I think that was, like, the curse in whatever mythology of Cassandra, not Harry Potter, but that she would always, she would accurately be able to see the future, but her, her payment was mm-hmm. that nobody would believe her, so... Interesting. Yeah. I had not heard that one. I do like it, though, because I feel like Ron never gets very much credit, which, to be fair, like, he is kind of big dumb, but, like... Yeah. Big, big dumb. Why did Hermione end up with him? Right? I always thought that he and Luna would have been a good couple. See? Wait, who did Luna... Does she... Who does she... I don't know that she ends up with anyone, but I think her and Neville could have also been a good couple. That's who I should. Yeah. All right. All right, Devin. What's your story? Devin's story time. What are you going to talk about? Well, 
like I said, I promised a cult. Uh, so sorry for that. Um, so I'll traumatize you at some other point. But this week I picked a story purely based on the fact that the person that perpetrated these crimes was super petty. Um, so this person just basically like terrorizes a small town in Ohio for literally over two decades. So it's pretty much like starts in the 1970s is like the 1970s version of cyberbullying when this anonymous person he writes letters that basically stirs up drama and fuels like local small town conspiracy and paranoia for literally 20 years and so i'm telling you the story of the circleville letter writer today so okay which we love anyone that sends random letters yes i love to see it and like okay so do you remember the app yik yak so, like, yeah. for anyone that's not familiar with Yik Yak, which is probably a lot of you, um, it basically was this app that, like, terrorized college campuses in, like, the early 2010s. So, like, you could send anonymous notes. So, basically, like, anonymous tweets on this app that would then get sent to everyone's feed in this local area. And some of them were just, like, flat out fucking mean. <laughs> so, it would be, like, Becky What's Her Nuts is, like, a fugly hoe that slept with the entire lacrosse team. Just, like, shit like that you would send out to this yik yak and everyone on campus would see it i will be honest like i always used to scroll on yik yak like looking for people talking about me as if i was like ever doing anything (laughs) interesting i am just as boring now as i was then like i don't know who i thought i was but yes i definitely did the same thing where i was like i wonder who's talking about me and like scroll on yik yak the answer was nobody of course nobody was talking about me but they all, well, okay, maybe it wasn't Yikak. I think it was actually a Facebook page because this, this was really popular yeah. in, like, 2010s where it was, like, uh, whatever, Confessions. Yes, And yes. so it would just post, like, random ones. WIU Confessions. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. What a fucking throwback. Man, that was, okay, the 2010s were, like, a dangerous time to be online. Yeah, because we also did chat with, like, Yeah, Omegle. Yeah. Ooh gross anyways back to the story (laughs) so (laughs) circleville letter writer this whole ordeal it starts in 1976 in the town circleville ohio um and so it's kind of like a nondescript little stereotypical small midwestern town like there's not a whole hell of a lot going on there um and it's ohio yeah except for the fact that it's now the one of the locations for one of the strangest unsolved mysteries like in the entire United States. It's great. We love it. They're years of infamy. So in 1976, the residents of this town, they start to receive these strange letters that are detailing very personal information about their lives from what I can guess was like, he's the OG low budget gossip girl, like this person writing the letters. So... (laughs) This mysterious letter writer seemed to know, like, a weird amount of details about the residents of this town, including, like, their darkest secrets or juiciest dramas. And so these letters literally follow the residents of this town for two whole decades, and they leave just this, like, hot piping trail of tea in their wake, just, like, dropping bombs, ruining lives, and, like, cackling to themselves in the background, I can imagine. So... The local legend goes that the letters started to appear one morning in late September of 1976, 
And that day, several residents found in their mailboxes handwritten letters done in like a blocky font, almost like how you would picture a ransom letter. So clearly someone was like trying to disguise their handwriting. And so these letters, they all come with no return address and they're all postmarked from Columbus, Ohio, which is a city that's like eh, 30 minutes north-ish from Circleville. It's nearby, but not super close. So these letters, again, they contain very private, scandalous details of the recipients' lives, and they include usually a vague threat against them and their family, saying, if you don't expose yourself to your husband for what you've done, I'm going to, you know, spill your secrets. So this obviously freaks people out and gets all the townspeople, like, hot and bothered about who the fuck this could be. So... These letters, they just continue to be sent and received to random members of the community. Literally, they're being sent in the hundreds, if not thousands of letters in the first, you know, few months here. Until finally, in May, it is the turn of the school superintendent, Mr. Gordon Massey, to open his first piece of mystery hate mail. It was (laughs) waiting for him in his inbox at the local high school when he arrives to work one morning. The contents of the letter that Mr. Massey received really just has him shook. So he probably has anxiety poops. Like, it's a bad day for him, definitely. So Massey, he's the type of guy that has, like, this outward appearance of having it all together. Like, he has a good job, a loving wife, he's got kids. But the contents of this letter implied that he was not, like, a Johnny Do-Good. Like, he wanted everyone to believe In the letter, the writer says, Dear Sir, according to my GF, you have asked her out, and apparently you have asked several other of the female bus drivers, too. This must out at once, for the good of the school and the families. End quote. So, that's a lie. That's not end quote. That's just part of the letter. So, it goes on, and this is kind of where it gets juicy. Quote, If you don't stop, I'll be forced to write the school board, and I'd hate to do that. I suggest you find yourself a pimple-faced whore and start up with her and leave my girls alone. End quote. So, basically, the letter letter writer's like, you got me fucked up if you think I'm going to let you slide in on my girl. Keep fucking around, sir. You're about to find out. (laughs) So, essentially, this letter writer is accusing Mr. Gordon Massey of being a cheating turd and abusing his position as the superintendent to pursue inappropriate relationships with the female bus drivers. He must have a type. And that type is female bus driver. Which, if you're familiar with the female bus drivers from my school days, you would not understand. But maybe these ladies were foxy, I don't know. So, he continues. He's getting these letters for, you know, a few weeks following... And as the weeks go on, the letters, they get more intense, and the threats are less vague. Um, Some of the letters threaten to cut Massey's brakes and slash his tires. However, you know, threats be damned. Massey, he needs a side piece. And so he takes up a relationship with one of the bus drivers, and surprise, surprise, the letter writer outs him to his employer, just as they said they would. So... The letter, which like it's not that hard to not date a bus driver after you've been threatened. Right? Why? Like, there's got to be. It's a small town for sure, but like, there can't be that many female bus drivers. At least it was the students, I guess. Right. That I mean, yeah, that's true. So, 
when the letter writer outs him to the school board, he sends off a four-page rant to the school board talking about how Massey is abusing his position and having these inappropriate relationships with multiple bus drivers. And that Massey is constantly picking on the weaker employees because he knows he can more easily take advantage of them. He also says, quote, better not upset my girl lest he suffer the consequences, end quote. So, and again, I keep saying he because just the terminology they're using, like my girlfriend, yada, yada, especially in the 1970s, you're led to believe that it's probably a dude. Um, But what if it wasn't? What if it was a secret lesbian? Well, it could have been. So the day after that letter, the second or another one is delivered to the board. So the four page letter gets delivered. The next day, another one's delivered. This one provides even more details in it, it details in length the days that Mr. Massey um, was out in the bus yard hitting on people, who he was hitting on, what time he was out there. Like, they came prepared with receipts. They were clearly watching him and what he was doing. Um, and so, keep in mind, at this time, Massey's still not the only one receiving letters. The whole community is receiving these letters, but Massey's also receiving these. So, this person is watching the superintendent. And all these other people, the community. So, like, he's everywhere but nowhere. Like, it's fascinating to me. So, despite all of the accusations and these letters that are getting sent to the school board, Massey keeps his job because the claims are pretty much just that. They're just accusations from what seems to be a jealous boyfriend And for some reason, nobody thought to go ask any of the female bus drivers if it was actually happening or if he was being a creep. They were just like, ah, he's fine. It's just a random letter, like, from a jealous boyfriend. Don't worry about it. So this, of course, pisses the letter writer off because at this point, no action is being taken. So they write another letter, this time providing the name of the driver that Mr. Massey is having an affair with, and they threatened the school board um, that the name of the school, the good name of the school, will be ruined if this personal information gets out. And (laughs) do you hear that? (laughs) Sorry, guys. I have a needy cat at the door. Let me finish the sentence, and then I will let her in. So basically, the letter writer threatens to besmirch the good name of the school and um, says he's going to leak all this information, yada, yada. So he leaks the name of the girl that he's having an affair with, as well as the bus driver's driver number 62971. Cat. All right. Where were we? Okay, so back to where we were. The letter writer has officially leaked the name of the bus driver that Mr. Gordon Massey, the school superintendent, is having an affair with. So, now we're kind of getting a more clear picture. God damn it, cat! Again, we're starting to get a more clear picture of who the letter writer is because I know enough about the school system to know the names of these people, to know where to look for this information in the bus yard. He knows the bus driver's number. Like, that's information that a common person wouldn't just know. And so, this bus driver number. 62917 is a woman named Mary Gillespie. And unfortunately, now she's found herself in the middle of this weird 
mind game the letter writer's playing with Mr. Massey and the school board. And so, of course, uh, she doesn't get left out of the fun. She starts to receive loads of letters to her family's home. And so these letters are really creepy. They, like, outline her daily life. They outline the supposed affair she's having with Mr. Massey, implying that the letter writer basically is actively stalking Mary and her family at this point. And this includes Mary's husband. So she's married. And so the letters said, I know where you live. I've been observing your house and I know you have children. You better take this serious. So at first, Mary decides to keep the letters to herself, not even telling her husband and basically says to herself, if I don't acknowledge this is happening, it's just going to go away. Like they're going to get bored of it eventually. No big deal. So wish that were the case. Unfortunately, this doesn't work and the letters just keep coming and coming by the dozens. And just like the letters Massey was receiving, the content gets progressively more vicious and creepy. And so in one of the letters, the writer tells her that she should contact the sheriff because they're serious about their threats. And so if you value your safety, basically, you'll contact the police. Uh, Still, though, Mary decides, I'm going to keep these letters on the DL and ignore this big glaring problem. And so eventually, the letter writer's like, this shit's not working. I have to change my tactics. So... Since Mary is not giving in to the writer and not giving them the drama that they are clearly desperately looking for, they decide to start addressing the letters to Mary's husband, Ron. So up to this point, Ron did not know this was happening. Mary was snatching the letters out of the mailbox and just like fucking hiding him, doing whatever. And so in these letters to Ron, they're talking about his wife's affair and warns Ron that if he doesn't do something about the affair, that his life would be in danger too. I am a little bit curious about this because if Mary was intercepting the letters addressed to her, don't you think that if she saw like a weird unpostmarked letter to her husband that she would have intercepted that too? Unless it was like camouflage or something like a bill. Yeah, that's fair. It is the 70s, so I'm assuming you're getting a lot more via mail than like the normal household nowadays. It's like junk mail, junk mail, bill. (laughs) So maybe that's why, but... Anyways. That her husband was actually getting the mail and he was just like, oh, my wife gets a lot of letters. That, yeah, that's a good like, point, too. Like, it could have just been like, oh, here's your letter, Mary. But at that rate, as a, the husband, I would be like, Mary's getting an awful lot of letters. Does she have a pen pal? So no one's asking questions in this relationship. They're just being blindly trusting, which, good for them, I guess. But anyways, so back to Ron and Mary... Ron confronts Mary, obviously, because he's been presented with this information that Mary is having an affair. And of course, she denies it, but um, does come clean to her husband that she has been receiving threatening letters for some time from a mystery pen pal for like several weeks and insisted to her husband that everything is just all one big sick joke from some weird prankster. And so they make the joint decision that uh, we'll just keep ignoring these they'll get tired (laughs) so they just know they're not going to notify the police that they're being actively stalked that they're getting receiving threatening letters they're just going to ignore it um and so after two weeks of ron receiving threatening letters of his own he gets another one that says you had two weeks and you've done nothing you are a pig defender you are also a pig make her admit the truth and inform the school board if not i will broadcast it on cb 
billboards, etc., etc. Only pigs, pigs ride motorcycles. I don't understand that line, but I thought it was funny. Um, good hunting in your red and white truck on the way to work. I followed them for weeks since last summer and have seen her meet him several times. You'll see. This is all caps. No joke. He's here for the drama. I'm telling you. So, clearly, this letter writer, he is unhinged. And so, for a brief moment, Ron, he thinks that he's caught the writer slipping. And in one of these letters included on the envelope is a return address for 550 Ridgewood Drive in Circleville. However, as it turns out, this address was not that of the letter writers, but he is leaving clues for Ron Ron about this affair um and that was the address for the superintendent mr massey so i'm gonna you know what messy massey is his name for me now (laughs) (laughs) the superintendent of good time guys messy massey so after these incidents mary and ron Finally, they get to a point where they decide to hold, like, a family crisis meeting with their BFFs, and they tell only three people about the letters. So they tell Ron's sister, Karen, her husband, Paul, and then Paul's sister. So together, they put, like, their brains on X Games mode, and they draft a list of, like, potential letter writers that they can think of. And so Mary had a few ideas of who it could have been, um, and they decided then to have Paul write letters to the people that they suspected, claiming that they knew who he or she was. And so their prime suspect was a co-worker of Mary's, a fellow bus driver that had come on to her a couple years prior. And then Mary, of course, rejected him. And so in their mind, they're like, that would explain a motive because he was jealous. Um, and also the knowledge that he had about the bus drivers and their routes and their numbers and things like that. And he would be around the bus yard to see Mr. Messy Massey coming and going and talking to whomever he was talking to. So Paul, he sends out this letter and it seemed as if their plan worked because for several weeks, the letters did stop. However, not forever. The letter writer does pick up. Remember, I tell you this story lasts for two decades and we're still in the first year, baby. So Mary and Ron's peaceful couple of weeks, they come to an end when finally one afternoon when driving home from work, Ron spots some weird, large handwritten signs by the side of the road. So this sign goes like straight into icky territory and accuses Mr. Massey of having sex not only with Mary, but with the Gillespie's 12-year-old daughter, Tracy. So Ron stops his truck, is like, fuck this, fuck this guy, removes the sign, and over the next couple of weeks, these signs, the same content, they just start popping up around town, everywhere around town. A majority of these signs, however, are placed along Mary's bus routes. So she has to see them on her way to and from school, driving these high schoolers to and from the building. So, of course, now that all these signs are popping up, this information is public in this small town. And so the story spreads throughout the town and puts like a huge amount of stress on Ron who already wasn't sleeping because he's stressed out about the situation. And he would literally get up before work, like several hours early, and look for these signs around the town so that he could remove them before Mary had to go out on her bus route, which, like, very kind of him <laughs> to look out for his life in that way. Um, but also, I can imagine he was just fucking pissed off. 
Especially after she even accused of cheating on him. Yeah, well, not only that, but, like, the accusations that against his daughter like it wouldn't be against his daughter it's against mr massey because of course she's a minor so if this was happening she has nothing to do with it but yeah the kids are mean. kids yeah exactly kids are mean you don't want your child to be bullied and also like that even if it's not true just to see that sign out there it's like probably traumatizing for a young girl so ron ron he is on his chivalrous mission removing these signs they're still getting threatening letters and things and so this is going on for quite a while. And then finally in 1977, I think it's in August, um, Mary and her sister-in-law, they're on a little girl's vacay in Florida. And so Ron is home alone with his daughter, Tracy, when he receives a mysterious phone call. So the call seems to confirm Ron's suspicions on the identity of the writer and um, the Gillespie's daughter, Tracy. She confirmed that the conversation Ron had wasn't pleasant and that he was yelling at the other person on the line. So we to this day don't know who it was on the other line. We just know that it was a very um, tense situation and phone call and that immediately after um, that phone call around 10 p.m., Ron grabs his gun and leaves the home to confront the lighter or letter the lighter he leaves his home to confront the letter writer so about 15 minutes later after he has left the house with his guns blazing ron is found dead in his pickup truck crashed into a tree so unfortunately ron had not been wearing a seatbelt and so he crashed into this tree and was partially ejected from his truck and died upon impact with the tree and the investigators at the scene later find out that Ron had fired at least one shot from his gun before crashing. And this crash was investigated by local sheriff Radcliffe. Um, and though there were suspects that were questioned, no arrests were ever made. And Ron's death officially is ruled an accident, claiming that he had lost control and crashed while driving drunk. Um, and the family all seemed to agree in speculation, however, that Ron, after having this phone call, took off in chase of the letter writer who was likely watching the home at the time, as we know that he was prone to do. And he gave chase to the writer in whatever vehicle or what if they were on foot, we don't know, and fired off around out of his window. And unfortunately, he was drunk. And so maybe in all of this hubbub, he loses control of his truck and does crash into the tree. Because the cause of death for him is very obviously he crashed his truck and then died upon impact. Um, but it's the circumstances surrounding why he left the house, why he had a gun, all of this yada yada that is suspicious. I wonder if they like actually checked his brake lines or not. Because I could see if somebody was like outside the house mm -hmm. watching, called from a payphone or something had cut his brake lines, was trying to antagonize him out and give, have him give chase, mm -hmm. and then knowing that his brake lines, I wonder if they just, like, wrote off as him being wrong. I mean, that's a good theory, especially given that in the letters that had been written to the superintendent, some of the threats made were that I will slash your tires, I'm going to cut your brake lines, yada yada. So it wouldn't have been out yeah. of character. Well, and with brake lines, like, if you cut brake lines, you have a little bit of time where they're still mm -hmm. working before all the brake fluid comes yeah. out. So. Yeah, so that's actually a very good theory that I hadn't thought of. So, I mean, that's could be it. Because, like, especially if the person was on foot, it would make sense that he, like, was chasing him down in a vehicle and, like, realized that he didn't have brakes and tried to, like, swerve to not, like, hit the person and ended up. Or swerve to hit the person. Yeah, or swerve to hit the person. Yeah, that's true, too. So, 
after the accident, of course, as we, we know, this is a small town and conspiracy and gossip are like rampant. And so soon residents are receiving more mystery letters stating that Sheriff Radcliffe, the one that had investigated the crash, had been involved in a cover up. And according to Paul, so that's Ron's brother-in-law, um, again, one of the ones from the secret family meeting, um, according to him, Sheriff Radcliffe initially agreed that the death was a result of foul play, but he allegedly changes his mind when the suspect that they had in mind passed a polygraph test and after the coroner stated that Ron's blood alcohol level was 0.16, which is twice the legal limit. Um, however, a lot of Ron's friends and family are surprised by this. They didn't think he was a heavy drinker. Um, I don't know that I necessarily subscribe to that because given the amount of stress that he was under, what his family was going through, and the fact that his wife was, wasn't home, it's not unreasonable to think that maybe he had a glass or two of scotch that night. Yeah. yeah. So. Or like, you know, pack a bottle. Yeah, yeah, just had the whole fifth of Jack. He was at home. He was fine. He was just going to chill until the stupid person called. Yeah. Well, I mean... That's why I think it's, like, the break-cutting situation, because they could have, if they were watching, they could have known he was drinking, mm-hmm. and maybe they didn't even need to cut the brakes, they just knew that he was too drunk to yeah. drive, and... Yeah, that's a very good point, too. Because, like, like, this guy, like, he thinks his wife is cheating on him, he thinks the superintendent has diddled his 12-year-old, his life is, like, falling around down, falling down around him, so, like, the fact that he's coping with alcohol, like, guys... It's not that uncommon. Like, even if he's not a heavy drinker, like, this would drive you to drink. Right. Well, and if, especially if you're not a heavy drinker, then, like, two drinks would put you over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like. Like me. I have, like, half a margarita and I get the vapors, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, after Ron's death and the invis- investigation that followed, um, we get more tea. Uh, Mary and the superintendent do end up acknowledging that they did have a relationship. <laughs> Although they claim, and this is where it's real fucking stupid, they claim their relationship didn't start until after the letters were sent. Right? So, like, the trauma of ha- receiving these letters just, like, drew them together, I guess. I don't know. None of this makes sense. Right? Because it's like, if you're receiving this letter, it's like, stop dating bus drivers. How hard is it to stop? Right. To date bus yeah, drivers? you wouldn't then... If you weren't already entwined with the bus drivers, you wouldn't then be, like, seeking out a relationship with this woman. And that's what they're trying to imply is that, oh, well, Mary was married and had a husband. Um, you know, we were we were good little girls. And then, you know, after we started getting these letters, unfortunately, we did just start fucking. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And at that point, just keep denying it. Like, ugh. Anyways, so... One would think, after Ron's untimely death, after them having admitted to the relationship that these letters would stop, um, that's not the case. So, Mary keeps receiving these letters, even after she's admitted these things, for years. She's receiving threatening letters from this guy. So, our next update in the story is in February of 1983. So, about five years have passed. And so, once again, the plot thickens. When Mary, who is still driving her bus, notices a sign next to the road in a farmer's field on her route, very similar to the one that Ron had spent countless hours, like, pulling out of the ground years ago, these signs are popping up again. So, this sign, once again, 
accuses Massey of inappropriate behavior with Mary's daughter. And Mary, at this point, she stops her bus. She's like, fuck this. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And she goes to rip the sign down. But when she did, she discovered that the sign was booby-trapped and designed to kill her. So the trap that was attached to the sign, it was a small box that contained his pistol. So if Mary had pulled the sign off of this pole and this box in a certain way, the gun would have fired and gone off. And depending on where Mary was, it could have shot her right in the face. Um, thankfully, Mary removed the sign and box in a way that did not trigger it. Um, so she avoided getting shot in the fluff and face. So good for her. So in this box, there was again, a gun and Thankfully, there was a very amateur attempt to rub the serial number off of the gun. And so lab tests were run on the pistol to reveal the serial number. And it was determined this gun belonged to Paul. Paul Fresher, Ron's family guy. Um, he had recently separated from Ron's sister. So it was her former brother-in-law, Paul. However... Paul goes on to claim that this gun had been stolen from him long ago, which likely story. Uh, so February of that year, Sheriff Radcliffe, he asked to meet Paul and to have a handwriting, handwriting test taken. So he asked Paul to try and copy the handwriting from the letters. And wow, like shocking. What happens is the sheriff gives him some letters and he's like try to copy this handwriting so of course paul tries to copy the handwriting and surprise surprise the letters that paul's writing looks exactly like the handwriting that they told him to try to copy <laughs> this test seems very illegitimate to me so after this test is run and they've determined that the handwriting matches paul and the sheriff go to paul's garage so that he could see where paul used to keep his pistol However, again, Paul insisted that the gun had been stolen from him a long time ago and that he had not been in possession of it for a while. So after this, the two of them return to the courthouse. Paul is arrested and he is charged officially with the attempted murder of Mary. Um, so in October of that year, he goes to trial for the attempted murder and he's never charged with writing the threatening letters because, of course, it's all circumstantial evidence. Um, they do become kind of a crucial part um in basically the them trying to prove that he like did the gun thing so mary then she gets on the stand she also testifies that she believed that paul was the writer after his wife visited her with the same suspicion so the sister-in-law that paul had separated from goes to mary and she's like i think my husband uh, might be the letter writer and so Mary testifies against him. Paul's boss also testified that he was not at work that day that the booby trap was found. And also, fun fact about Paul, he worked at an Anheuser-Busch plant in Columbus, Ohio. And if we recall from the beginning of the story, these letters were all postmarked from Columbus, Ohio. So that would have made it extremely easy for him to have sent the letters on his way either to or from work. Now, the plot still gets a little thicker, a little beefier. This is a big stew pot it's not just miso soup there's chunks to this so <laughs> paul of course he ends up being convicted because the evidence is just stacking up against him and he's given a 7 to 24 year sentence however while he's in jail the letters keep coming 
to residents of the town and to himself in prison. So again, these letters, they are all postmarked from Columbus, even though he was in prison in Lima. So Paul cannot be sending these. He's in solitary confinement. He's receiving the letters himself. Literally thousands of letters are reported around that area of Ohio in the similar style of the Circleville letter writer, some of which even reportedly contain arsenic. So it was so extreme that even the wardens at the prison were like, there's no fucking way this Danny DeVito looking motherfucker is keeping up with all this. There's just <laughs> no way that it's him. And so well, they, they screen letters when you yeah. are in prison. Well, and there was arsenic like they... in them. He's not sending arsenic around to Ohio. Where the fuck is he getting arsenic in jail? I mean, I guess well, you can I mean, get a lot of contraband in jail, but... so that's I should take that back. I've watched a lot of 60 Days In. I know that you can smuggle things in your coochie, but like... Or maybe not arsenic. Maybe it's cyanide. You can make cyanide. Hmm. Like with cherry pits. Well, regardless, there's just too much going on for this guy to be sending these letters to and from himself in solitary confinement. And so... During his time in jail, this gossip girl is just, like, literally spilling tea everywhere. He's writing to teachers, to public officials, sheriff's offices. He's threatening to expose indecencies and injustices as he sees them. Um, and they focus on a few people in particular, one being the public prosecutor, Robert Klein, who is the man responsible for sending Paul to the jail. And then they also, re or, so I guess back to Klein, they accuse him of earlier in his career getting a school teacher knocked up and then murdering her to cover up the incident. <laughs> and so the letter writer threatens this prosecutor to dig up the remains of the child for proof. And then they also accuse the coroner of child abuse. Um, and this accusation actually did turn out to be true. This guy is sent to jail for his crimes in the nineties, thankfully. Um, which kind of makes you wonder, like, how much of this information that the letter writer is sending out is actually true. Because he is getting some of it right. Like, arguably, he's getting a lot of it right. Yeah. And so... It's not It's not a case where even a broken clock is right twice yeah. a day. It's like... It's like this guy... This broken clock is right a ...knows lot. about the affairs. I hope that he was wrong about Massey and the Gillespie's daughter. I hope that... There was no murder of a school teacher, but he's right often but enough. I feel like I feel like in the you know the seventies and eighties and even the nineties, like the internet wasn't as much of a thing mm -hmm. in the nineties and wasn't existent in the eighties and seventies. So people did a lot more crime. Mm -hmm. Like you could get away with a lot yeah. more. They didn't. There was no PCR for anything. You can you can test DNA in the PCR. Mm -hmm. And now we're using it to diagnose COVID. So yeah, like every day. It's just like, how Multiple does this guy know so much? Like he's got to just be like the guy, like Peter Baelish on Game of Thrones, where he just has like all the little birds in his ear. And so poor Paul, like despite these letters still going around, like I'm not saying that he didn't put the baby trap in, like who knows, but he sits in jail for years and probably the whole time is like, you guys can't be fucking serious. Like, there's not even enough pencils available in commissary for me to be writing this many letters. Like, what the heck? And so finally, in December of 1990, he becomes eligible for parole. However, he's denied parole due to the letters that are being sent around during his stint in jail. They are like, no, like, the media is just too hot on this, whatever. 
Um, but however, 1994, he gets up for parole again, and he continues to maintain his innocence. Um, and he is paroled that year. So he does eventually get out of jail, although it was coming to like the end of his sentence anyway. He had seven to 24 years. So honestly, like even given all the evidence against him, I don't think he did it. I really don't. And there are a couple of interesting theories about who it could have been. So first theory um, is that co-worker of Mary's that we mentioned before. His name was like David something. And anyway, so this theory seems plausible because not only would he know Mary's schedule and route, um, but they're also, you know, they were in the same workplace as where Massey and Mary were interacting. And if you couple that with access that with the fact that um, Mary had rejected him for motive and took up with another dude, um, it also makes kind of perfect sense that a bus driver would have weird personal details about the adults in town because they're driving a shitload of kids and teenagers around town all day so like of course they're bound to hear gossip about these kids parents so like it's not right like and the kids and the child abuse and stuff Mm -hmm. like yeah so he would have had good access to all those details i don't know that it was him um there's also a good argument against like it being one of the other female drivers that massey was allegedly like side piecing with so like maybe she was jealous that the attention was being given to Mary and not to them. And it was just like manifested in this weird jealous rage. And again, if she's driving a bus, she has a lot of weird information about the adults in town. Um, of course the theory that Paul's behind it is still kind of valid, but like if I was going to plant a booby trap with a gun, I wouldn't do a half-assed job of filing off a serial number on the weapon. So it's like almost looks as if whoever planted the gun wanted it to look like Paul had tried to file it off, but still wanted it to be visible enough that he got busted for it. Um, well, that's the first rule of crime. If you're going to use like a vehicle or anything, you never use your own. You always steal. Right. Else, right. Exactly. And like, also, how do you explain all the letters coming and going while Paula was in jail? Like, I mean, I guess you could say it was a copycat, but if that were the case, like why would they waste their time writing to Paul in jail? Yeah. And there was also a little bit of interesting eyewitness evidence that was left out of Paul's trial And so on the day of the attempted murder and that booby trap, one of the other bus drivers along that route happened to see a very tall, skinny man driving a yellow El Camino parked in the spot where that sign and booby trap were later found. And allegedly this man was like facing away from the road, taking a piss. Um, But it could very well have been that he was affixing something to the pole. And so it's worth noting, like I mentioned, Paul is like a Danny DeVito looking like, super mario dude he's just like short and plumpy so like if this evidence is accurate and they did see a trap being placed who would that mystery man have been because it wasn't paul right tall people scare me tall people yeah they're scary i'm sorry i'm sorry if any of our listeners are tall but they scare me but yeah they're just too long uh, yeah it's like the slender man complex yeah Mm -hmm. But yeah, that is the story of the Circleville letter writer. So he, you know, approximately 1976 to 1994 was sending out letters and just like gossip girling this whole town. Honestly, I could see it being another one of the teachers too, mm-hmm. especially like a teacher that all the kids really like. So they're really like comfortable going and talking yeah. to them about these really dark things. Like my parents are getting divorced or, you know, my mom likes to hook up with the milkman. Like... <laughs> 
gross. Because yeah. kids, well, kids are dumb, so they're going to tell, you know, they're going to tell an adult that they trust about stuff that's going mm-hmm. on, so. Yeah. Lots of interesting theories. I don't think it was Paul, necessarily. I don't know. But it could also have been Paul and then a bunch of copycat letter writers when he went to jail, just because, like, the media sensationalized the fuck out of this case, so. But what if it was, like, a, a group of the bus drivers? So maybe there was, mm. like, one of the... The bus drivers that had been scorned by the principal were, like, pissed off. And then the other guy's like, well, I asked her out and she wouldn't date me, mm-hmm. so I hate her, too. So then they were just, like, te- tag-teaming it. Yeah. Well, and, like, like a, a network. if you look up the letters, like, you can see scans of the letters. The handwriting is just, like, very blocky, like, square-shaped letters. So it would have been something very easy mm-hmm. for, like, multiple people to have recreated the same look to the, the letters. It's not like someone's handwriting. It's like a very stylized, intentional style of writing. Yeah. Well, and handwriting is one of the lesser, like, accepted forms of evidence. Before. Yeah. Because you can change handwriting. And... Well, on that note, since it is getting a little bit late, shall we yes. do, yeah. yeah, just like a quickie? Can we do like a three card draw? We'll see if they will. <laughs> okay. I have to grab them real quick. They're over here. It's tarot time. Baby, it's tarot time. Let's find out time. what's going to happen this week. Okay, so for tarot time, we have the Ten of Wands reverse, which this is like you had a lot of burdens, you got rid of them, you were throwing them away. You might have felt like your world was turned upside down with the world reversed. Um, you know, you took a little time to cry about it. And be upset with the five of cups upright. But um, you really just need to get back to sort of traditionalism. Um, get back to basics, back to your roots with the hierophant upright. Um, you know, if that's religion, if that's faith, it could be something like that. It could also be like, you know that you are someone who has your head on straight. Like, you know, you're a wise person. So just kind of trusting your own intuition, because um, a higher fence kind of can kind of sometimes be like trusting your faith, but it can also be just trusting yourself. So knowing that you are, you're better than everybody else, baby. <laughs> Spoken like a true you know, Gemini. You might have had it. A... <laughs> really though, but you know it's the self-loathing that sets in. Just keeps me humbled. Um, so yeah, you know offloading burdens you feel like everything's turned upside down you've given yourself the appropriate time to be upset about things but now it's time to just trust yourself you're better you know you're better you're always going to be better and on that now that's my perfect this week. Can't really beat no it. i mean that's a good one a solid one um <laughs> and can i make a proposal is that of course we have to do our fuck yous but can we also do fuck yas yeah okay so let's do it I'm going to give myself two fuck yous this week, just because I feel like I need to put a cap on it. First off is um, Cody from Sister Wives. Fuck you. You don't deserve four wives. You don't deserve one wife, arguably. Um, So fuck you. And all the wonderful children that he has that are just great, phenomenal children. I know. I really like Mary's daughter. She seems like cool, chill. Love it. Love it for her. Well, they're all just like... The, the one that recently had surgery that was just, like, 
yeah, I know why he couldn't be mm-hmm. there. It still hurts, but it's just, like, very well-adjusted. Or, like, he's got one son that in a recent episode was, like, kind of, like, testing the limits with his dad. Like, dad, this doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. And then his dad just, like, fucking berates him and just, like, doesn't listen to his feelings at all. And then the whole time I'm like, oh, my God, that poor guy. Like, poor little 18-year-old man just, like, wants to be feel, feel validated from his dad and he just gets fucking shit on. So, fuck you, Cody. He's not going to. He's not going to get yeah. that. Cody's a man-child. Um, and then I'll issue my last FU to Jamie Lynn Spears, just because we, we don't need an explanation on that one. We just know. She sucks. Yeah. yeah. We just know. Well, the whole Spears family, really. Yeah. But... Well, aside from Brittany, of course. Uh, what about your fuck yes? Um, my fuck yes is the six pack of Twix Santas that I found on Amazon <laughs> recently. <laughs> And the fact that I am finally have convinced my husband that the tech coffee table we've had for the entirety of our almost 10 year relationship that I hate so much is going bye bye and I got a new coffee table. So. And it's coming this week? Tomorrow. Tomorrow. I haven't got the other one sold yet, but it's just going to get like relegated to the garage until someone will come just pick it up and take it away from my house. Yeah. Or you have a garage sale or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my fuck yous for the week are, of course, Michael Peterson, because you're just, he's trash, he's pretentious, mm-hmm. he's not, he's not the type of luxury that we want to be, like, you need to be able to eat Taco Bell, too, and not just right. drink very expensive wine in a mansion. Um, you need to be able to order Taco Bell packs mm-hmm. to said mansion. Yeah. And drink whatever came in that was great. Um... Any other no, that's good though. Week. That's very big of you. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of things that annoy me, but you know, it's not really worth a fuck you. I'll say my fuck yes though are. Oh, is this a good one? The zebra rug. Oh, the zebra rug. All, both of our fuck okay. yes are. We bought something cool this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, for those of our listeners that aren't familiar, um, I have a shopping problem. I have ADHD, I have an impulsivity issue, I have a dopamine issue. I need to buy things that make me feel things. Um, also, I'm a Gemini, so sometimes I just don't feel things, and shopping's the only thing that makes me feel things. Anyways, deep dive. <laughs> I bought a faux, not real, faux zebra hide rug. It even has a little mane that's shaped like a zebra. It looks very realistic on Amazon, and it's coming on Wednesday. I love this for you. And I'm so excited. Also, I'm, now that I'm single, I'm living my full, like, gothic, maximalist dream. But kind of light, you know, I do, like, mm-hmm. like a, a dark accent wall, but mostly light, you know, light linens and curtains and stuff, but lots of green. Love it. So, I'm just filling up. I want a table and chairs for seventy five dollars. She bought this big awesome mirror that's like a really ornate. Cool no, I got thing. it for free. You got the mirror for free? Yeah. So okay, oh. this is a little side note. Fuck you, or fuck yeah too. So I went to the thrift store. She was gonna sell it to me for thirty dollars, but then she's like, you know what, just take it. So I was at the thrift store. I was loading. I had to take the table apart to put it in the car that I was driving. And I was loading the chairs and stuff. I was like, I want this. This mirror it has a really ornate gold frame. It's really beautiful. Well, maybe I'll throw a picture in there. Um, and it was originally forty dollars, which for a it's like a four by you know twenty eight 
near mm-hmm. 48 by 20 is big. Uh, very large horizontal gold ornate mirror. And so she's like, oh yeah, you know what, 30, because you're nice, whatever, you just bought this table. And then I was helping the guy, there, a guy came in, he's like, oh, I want to get this recliner for my dad. And uh, she's like, okay, so she, he bought it, and he's like, I might need help looking into the car. I was like, oh, I can help you. And she's like, that was so nice, you can just have that in here. I was like, heck yeah. Okay. That, that arguably All is right. a bigger fuck yeah. Like, I love the zebra print rug but also i love free shit so good yeah. for you and good well on. and the table the table it's like a sort of ovalish it's not very long in its original state so it's like about five feet long mm-hmm. but skinnier so it's like less than four feet wide i don't know i'm not good with measurements but it, it has leaves and you can open it up it has two leaves that are 18 inches so it can open up to like about mm-hmm. six seven foot I don't know. Maybe wider. Maybe almost eight foot. I don't know. Seven and a half feet. Who the hell can do that? Not me. Um, but the, it's all like solid wood. And then I got four chairs that have cane backs. It's all in good condition. Like I need to patch a little bit here and there. If I can do that with some just like pieces of straw, mm-hmm. it's fine. I'm not concerned about it. Um, hardly noticeable. But I got it all for $75. Damn, solid wood. bitch. Yeah, that's a big fuck yeah. So, yeah. My luck has improved significantly well good let's end it on that nice note of positivity there and guys thanks for sticking with us through our um super extended holiday break we're refreshed and ready to probably every other week is what we'll do for upload schedule just for for the time being and then we'll get maybe back to the normal normally scheduled programs at some point for for sanity's sake yeah yeah because we both have full-time well, jobs for, and stuff, so. Yeah. Well, thank you for sticking with us through all of our lies and untruths. Yeah. Because... All of our empty promises that we've made. But we're two air signs, so we're flaky. Yeah. So you can't really expect much more out of us. That's like, very true. There's been times where we have made plans with each other and then have canceled plans simultaneously because we just both flake down on each mm-hmm. other. And it's like, neither of us has hard feelings. So be more like an air yeah. sign. Be more flexible. Yep. Heard that. All right, guys. On that note, um, you can find us at our socials. Mostly Instagram is where we, you know, post things. So mostly our story. We don't post a whole lot on the feed, but um, I like to meme on our stories quite often. Um, And yeah, there's other socials. You can find them. And uh, my cat is deciding that she wants in and out. So I am going to end it here and we will see you guys probably in about two weeks. So follow us on our Instagram. You'll know when we post. That's all there is. All there is to it. Mm -hmm. All right. Bye guys. Bye bye. Bye.